I'm going to read for us from Romans chapter 15. And I believe this is a text that actually Joey read for us a couple of, actually this last Sunday. Romans 15. Really wonderful text. I'm just going to read one verse to, to get our minds started here. As we think about the doctrine of the Holy Scriptures that we've been going over for the last three weeks, we have here written by the Apostle Paul, for whatever was written in the former days was written for our instruction, that through the, that through the endurance and through the encouragement of the Scriptures we might have hope. And so, we spent the first week that we were looking at the doctrine of Scripture, seeing the necessity of Holy Scripture, that God was not pleased to just reveal to us through various means His special revelation. He was not pleased to leave it with just prophecy in the mouths of men, nor to leave it with dreams and visions that He sometimes gave. But God in His wise and loving providence saw it to be necessary to have special revelation written down for us or inscripturated for the preservation of the truth of these doctrines, to keep them from the world, the flesh, and the devil, and that we might have a more sure confidence in the Scripture, right? We look next to just how do we know what is included in Scripture? What books of the Bible can we look to with confidence? And I I hope we made a somewhat convincing case that the 66 books that we have in the Old and New Testament are the only books that God has canonized as His authorship And then last week, we looked at the sufficiency and the clarity of Scripture, that the Scripture speaks to everything that pertains to life and godliness, and it is clear in different ways and different means. And today, we're going to be looking at paragraphs 8, 9, and 10, and Paragraph 8, I think Sam Waldron puts a good word to it. I don't know if it's the best word, but it's a, it's a good word. Paragraph 8 talks about the availability of the Scriptures. Okay, The availability of the Scriptures. And this is an important thing for us to consider. If God saw it necessary to inscripturate His special revelation to us, that we could read it, that we could have confidence and hope in it, if He has put those things together in the 66 books of the Scripture and made them sufficient and clear, then of necessity, you would think that all the people of God would have access to those Scriptures. And so, paragraph 8 deals with that. The availability of the Holy Scripture. And I, I fear that for most of us here today, these are things that we just take for granted, and hopefully we can have a better appreciation of it as we go forward. So, first, the, the fact of its availability, that God preserved His holy Word, right? And we, we have written here, the Old Testament in Hebrew, which was the native language of the, God, the people of God of old, and the New Testament in Greek, which at the time of the writing of it was most generally known to the nations, being immediately inspired by God, by His singular care and providence, kept pure in all ages, are therefore authentic, so as in all controversies of religion, the church is finally to appeal to them. And so the first thing that the authors of the confession point to is the original language that the Scriptures were written in. And I'm positive that the writers of the confession knew that there are some portions of the Old Testament that were not written in Hebrew, 
but were written in Aramaic, right? And there are some portions of the New Testament, very small portions, that were not written in Greek. But they're speaking broadly here that the Old Testament in Hebrew and the New Testament in Greek. And um, before we get into the inspiration of these things, I want us to try to just look at the wisdom of God and how we see in the Bible why we would have the Old Testament in Hebrew. Okay? So it's something we don't think about. We just think, well, that was the Jewish people, and that was their language. But I think if we think about it biblically, we think about the Tower of Babel. That all nations before that instance had one language. And God was pleased to scatter them throughout the earth because they tried to consolidate power for themselves and not go to the ends of the earth as God had directed them to. And out of all of those different languages that God split them up to, He chose one man directly after that, Abraham. He chose the Hebrew people to contain the knowledge of Scripture. And so, just in the language that we see the Old Testament written in, we can see a theology of God choosing one people to preserve His and to preserve a seed that Jesus Christ would come from them. Right? So I think that even looking at the fact that we have the Old Testament in Hebrew really shows us some marvelous connections to theology. And especially when we look at the New Testament in Greek. Okay? Because this was not just the language that the apostles spoke in the day, but if you know your history, Koine Greek, that's common Greek, had spread throughout the whole world because of the conquering of Alexander the Great. The known world at the time knew New Testament Greek. And so God in His providence, He reverses Babel, so to speak, in a way, by taking the language out of just the Jewish people's language, and the New Covenant is put into the language of all peoples at the time. That everybody could understand. Everybody could have a copy of the Scripture and know them. And in that, just the languages of the Old and New Testament, we see the transference from a single people of God, a single nation, to all nations of the earth. And I think that that's, that's, that should cause us to worship God. He directed all providence to that end. Now, we see here as we go on that the original writings were preserved for us in the vast amount of Greek and Hebrew manuscripts. Okay, so these were immediately inspired in the original languages. Okay, and what I mean by immediately inspired is that God chose in special revelation to inspire certain men, and then all of that revelation to be written down in the books of the Bible that we have. And it's only in the original languages and really only in the original manuscripts that we can say we have the unadulterated, inspired Word of God, word for word, with confidence. Okay, But that leads us to question, well, does that mean that what we have today, we can't have confidence in? That's what some would say. Uh, King James only us. I got uh, roasted by a letter in the mail to the church by a King James only us guy trying to convince us that we're heretics. Um, and one of the things that they would say is that God had to absolutely so preserve His Word that the English Bibles that we hold in our hands, we have to be positive that every jot and tittle in this particular translation is immediately inspired by God. That's why some King James only believe that in 1611, the Bible was re-inspired 
when the King James Version was written, right? Uh, but this paragraph is about that kind of preservation. Rather, God preserved his writing because through the amount of manuscripts that we have, okay? That is, no ancient document of the old world has so many manuscripts to it than the New Testament that we have today. The Old Testament was set in stone and accepted by Jesus Christ and the apostles. The New Testament itself, we can have absolute confidence in that we have the Word of God. Now, the issue is, I think James White points this out, it's like if you have a a puzzle box with 10,000-piece puzzle, right? But we have 10,100 pieces, okay? We know that we have all the right pieces. We know that we have the actual inspired scriptures. But there are some places where there's difficulty because some of our manuscripts have additions to them. Some of them have something that's not included by scribal error. But we can be confident that God preserved his word through the whole manuscript tradition. That he was pleased to preserve it in that way. Now, does that take work on our part to go through or scholars and Bible translators to go through and see what is original and not? Yes, but we can have confidence through study that we, we have every word of God that he has written. Does that make sense? Do you have any questions about that? This would probably take an hour and a half. And James White, uh, we're, we're happy to include it. We have New Testament reliability by James White. It's a wonderful teaching, as he's a textual scholar as well, that we would love to make available to you if you have any questions about that. So these were inspired in the original language and that God has kept them pure in all ages. Now, these original languages uh, and the knowledge of them is extremely important for the church. Now, our English translations is what I rely on most heavily in my sermon preparation. Um, I don't have a very good working knowledge of Hebrew and a very poor working knowledge of Greek, probably. But there should be, for the elders of the church and for the church in general, an esteem to know the languages better so that we can appeal to them, right? Because God chose to write in these languages and for a good reason, and we should seek to know them. Now, this is important historically. That the translation that we have in our hands, either by an English or whatever it might be, is taken from the original Greek and Hebrew. Now, this is important historically because the Catholic Church, right? You might know that the Septuagint, which was the accepted translation in the early church, was translated by Jerome. What did Jerome translate the Bible into? Latin, yes. The Bible was translated into Latin and there was riots in the streets because he did such a thing. But the Roman Catholic Church so clung to that Latin translation that they wouldn't go outside of it. And this caused really the major point of the Reformation as Martin Luther was through Greek and he came across, I believe in the book of Romans, that the word is not do penance, but repent. And this is extremely important for the church. And one example... Why the original languages are so important that we need to, to seek to know them to some degree or have people in the church that know them so that we can appeal to them. Um, but our English translations are so wonderful that we can appeal to them as well. And that's part of the thing that I 
I believe we, do, we, uh, we overlook today that all of us probably have five to ten Bibles sitting around in our homes. But at the time that this document was written and before that, it was actually not even looked upon as a good thing for people to have a Bible in their own language sitting in their lap. The Catholic Church thought that it was dangerous for the people of God to have the Bible translated into their own language because they would misinterpret it or distort it. But with every, <clears throat> every attempt at reformation of the Roman Catholic Church, whether it was John Wycliffe or Hus, all of them tried to, to get the Bible written in its original languages. And this is what most of our missionaries do as well. When they go into a foreign land, Caleb Jabello, he's working hard to translate the Bible into the language of the Papua New Guinea tribes. And this is extremely important for us. And that's why our confession states after that, but because these original tongues are not known to all the people of God who have right unto and interest in the scriptures and are commanded in the fear of God to read and search them, therefore they are to be translated into the vulgar language of every nation unto which they come, that the word of God, dwelling plentifully in all, they may worship him in an acceptable manner, and through the patience and comfort of the scriptures have hope. And that's why we chose to read Romans chapter 15 and verse 4 this morning, that Paul tells us very plainly that whatever was written down in the former ages was written that we might have hope. Now, as we consider translations, um, finally, how do we know that it's an appropriate thing in the Scripture to use a translation of the Scripture and not the original languages itself? Joey. Yes, yeah. The vast majority of the quotations that we have in the New Testament are not quotations from the original Hebrew that was written down, but they're quotations from the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Old Testament. Now, to me, that's an almost unassailable argument against the King James onlyist, right? They would have to affirm, in many cases, the Septuagint differs with the Hebrew manuscripts, that there's almost two different uh, Old Testament-inspired texts. But... Yes, that's absolutely right, Joey. We have the New Testament quoting from a Greek translation of the Septuagint for the people of God. And that's perfectly acceptable, not just to the apostles, but to Jesus Christ himself to do that. God works not just in the original languages. He works through translations. And that's why we should have confidence in our English Bibles, brothers and sisters. And if we don't know Hebrew and Greek, we're so blessed in this particular time that we can gather together multiple good translations and compare them and contrast them. We can read good commentaries to see why they chose these different things. And we can arrive to pretty definite conclusions about things. Yes, brother. That's right, brother. And again, we, we shouldn't look at this as if God is outside this kind of preservation. God, I think that we would be pleased, like a King James-only kind of theory of inspiration, like that, that makes me maybe a little more comfortable. Like that God would just supernaturally intend it so there's no differences in any manuscripts ever at any time. Um, there's no 
even mistakes in printing. You guys might be aware of the, the printing mistake. I, I forget what, it, what it's called. The unholy Bible or whatever. The printing mistake that they left out the seventh commandment on the printing press at one time. By pure accident, obviously. And so it skips over, you shall not commit adultery. Okay. Th- those kind of things happen. But God has been pleased to not just give us a plentitude of manuscripts, not just a plentitude of translations. He's been pleased to give us good helps and resources that we can use to study God's Word, to find out what it really means. God's pleased to to conceal things to a certain degree because He wants His people to search them out. And we can see that in the Holy Scriptures. Okay, So... The main thing that I want us to see is that the availability of Scripture has been kept pure by God through translation and through the multitude of manuscripts that we have, that we can certainly look to the Bible and have hope in them, that God in His goodness and kindness has made them widely available to the entire world in such a way that can never be taken away. In fact, if some was to be able to sneak into all of our houses tonight, gather up all of our Bibles and burn them, you know we could go to the church fathers and reconstruct what the Bible says just from the quotations of it? I mean, we have a a marvelous availability of Scripture. So, we move to paragraph 9, which is the finality of Scripture, and first, the finality of Scripture as its own interpreter, okay? So when we think about the finality of Scripture, we're not just saying that God's not going to add any more revelation to it, which is true, but that the Bible is so sufficient and clear that it serves as its own interpreter. Listen to these words. This is a wonderful little paragraph. The infallible rule of interpretation of Scripture is the Scripture itself. And therefore, when there is a question about the true and full sense of any Scripture, which is not manifold but one, it must be searched by the other places that speak more clearly. Okay? Now, we discussed last week that the clarity of the Bible is not every part as is, is as clear as other parts, nor is it as clear to every single saint as it is to other saints. Okay? But, God so composed the Bible... That it's used as its own interpreter. Its own interpreter. I was listening, I was talking to Miss Rachel beforehand. I was listening to Brother Mike Waters this week teach through this paragraph. And uh, I don't think that Brother Mike would, because he's put it online. Brother Mike was saved in a homeless shelter. And he says that he never read a book in his life prior to, to the Bible. And sitting there... He read the Bible, and God gave him a thirst for the Scriptures. And one of the things, I think, when we come to know Christ that is almost implanted upon us is this idea that the Bible interprets itself, right? I remember it very clearly after I was saved as well. As we go to Bible study, a bunch of unlearned, non-seminary trained people that really weren't even in the church sinfully, sitting around in a living room and talking about the Scripture, it was always, well, what about this passage? What does that say? Right? We, we almost intuitively, as saved people, know that the Bible interprets itself. And this is called the analogy of Scripture in theology. And it's a, it's a very helpful means of thinking about this. How, what kind of errors does the analogy of Scripture, that the Bible interprets the Bible, keep us from? Private interpretation? Yeah, that 
whatever the Bible says to me at a particular moment is what the Bible means, except for when it means something else to you. And that's fine, right? But the scripture really means something. And the Bible is to be used to see what a proper interpretation is. What other error can we think of? Extra-biblical church tradition and the authority of the church, right? Now, we believe in the authority of the church to a certain degree, congregationally and in the elders of the church, but that no means and can never usurp the, the authority of Scripture and the, the interpretation of Scripture with Scripture. If I sit up here on the Lord's Day and I say something from the pulpit that can't be shown in Scripture, you're not just to accept it because I say it, right? Hopefully, it can be shown through Scripture. Now, there's a couple of different ways that this works itself out practically. So if we are to open our Bibles and we read something that's hard for us to understand, which happens to me daily, right? There's a couple of principles about Scripture interpreting Scripture that we should keep in mind. And the first is that the clearer passages of Scripture interpret the obscure passages of Scripture. Okay? That is, there are some things written in Scripture that are really, honestly, very hard to understand. And some of them, on first reading, can seem contrary, right, to what Scripture teaches overall. Well, can we think of any examples of that? that? That was one that came to my mind as well, brother. Yeah, so James, chapter 2, in uh, verse 14 says, what good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking daily food, and one of you says, go in peace and be warmed and filled, without giving them the things that are for the body, what good is that? So faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. Okay? And so, I remember sitting in a, a Bible study when we used to live in Columbus Grove and we were going to the Pentecostal church, sitting in a Bible study, and the guy teaching it said, you know, there's only one time when faith alone is used in Scripture, and it's in James chapter 2, that faith isn't by itself, that it's always with works, okay? But when we read that passage, the principle that we have in front of us is that the clearer text in Scripture interpret the more obscure text, and so... We don't believe that James is in conflict with Paul, but we see that Paul wrote exceedingly clear about this topic, don't we? We see in Romans chapter 3, 4, and 5 that Paul explicitly states that it is not, we are not saved by works or a mixture of works and faith, but we're saved by faith alone. Okay? And so we have the hard job of seeing this clearly outlined, seeing what James said, and as believing brothers and sisters, we... We harmonize these things. Brother. Yep, I have that next. Yes. Mm -hmm. That's right. That's absolutely right, brother. We'll we'll get there in a minute. Um, And so, we're not going to have time to totally go through James here, but it's very clear in James 2, since we have this issue confront us, that James is talking about something substantially different. He's saying, what good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have work, can that faith save him? So can
that produces no work save a person, right? And what's being said there is that this isn't true saving faith. It's not saying that this person has true saving faith, but he doesn't do any works. It's, does that kind of faith save him? Moreover, this is talking about the fruit of faith being shown not to an individual, but to the congregation, right? He says in verse 18, someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works. And obviously you can't do that. I can't show you my faith apart from my works. I can only show you my faith, the concrete reality of what I believe, by acting as if it was true, okay? So we have to do the hard work of looking to more clear texts of Scripture. And this is what false teachers in the church want to point us away from. False teachers always go to more obscure texts and say, well, that's just what it says, and we have to take it at face value. Rather than saying, well, the Bible is a complicated book that speaks the same thing throughout it, and sometimes you have to compare Scripture with Scripture to come up with the true meaning of a text. And as Brother Joey said, the New Testament interprets the Old Testament. Uh, I'd have you just turn quickly to 2 Corinthians chapter 3 for this. Second Corinthians chapter 3, one of the things that makes the new covenant better than the old covenant is that the new covenant is clearer in its teaching. The new covenant is clearer. It's no longer in types and shadows, no longer in mysterious things spoken, but it's spoken clearly. And we see this in verses 12 and onward. It says, since we have such a hope, we are very bold, not like Moses who had put a veil over his face so that the Israelites uh, not gaze at the outcome of what was being brought to an end, but their minds were hardened for to this day when they read the Old Covenant, the same veil remains unlifted because only through Christ it is taken away. Yes, to this day, whenever Moses has read, a veil lies over their heart, but when one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. Now the Lord is the Spirit. And where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we all with unveiled face beholding the glory of the Lord are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory, even by the Spirit of the Lord. And so, that is why Paul says in another text that we don't veil like Moses did the Old Covenant. Okay, Moses was willing to speak in types and shadows and keep those things veiled, But in the New Covenant, these things are totally unveiled and everybody sees the glory of God as presented in the Gospel. Now, they don't see it because of their sin inhibiting them, but the message of the Gospel in the New Covenant is clearer than the message in the Old Covenant. Um, And we have many different ways we could explain this. As Brother Joey said, Galatians chapter 3, as we see opened up for us that not all that are descended from Abraham of the flesh are Israel, but those who are the children of promise, those who are believers. And we could add many things to that. That the New Testament is clearer and therefore ought to be, ought to be referenced when we're trying to interpret difficult Old Testament texts. What does the fullness of God's revelation in the New Covenant say to us? Do we have any questions about that? Any additions, any thoughts?
the Old Testament is not a... I heard you say the New Testament is not a Jewish text, but a Christian text. I think, did you mean the Old Testament is not a Jewish text? Okay, yeah. No, that's better. Both of them are true, but yeah. The Old Testament is not primarily a Jewish text. The Old Testament is primarily a text talking about the suffering, death, resurrection of Jesus Christ. Um, It's primarily what it's about, and the New Testament makes that more clear. It shines brighter light upon it. And... Therefore, it says, when there's a question about the true and full sense of any scripture which is not manifold but one, it must be searched by other places that speak more clearly. Okay. Now, this is not saying that there are not multiple things that we can learn from each individual passage of scripture. Okay. We can learn from Abraham sacrificing his son on Mount Moriah a number of things. We can learn moral things from it. That it's good to trust God even though it looks like this might be a hopeless end. But, but cling to the hope of God in everything, right? We could be good to learn from that. The children ought to submit to their parents no matter how much uh, must be going on in our minds to think our parents are crazy at this moment, okay? But the true and full sense, I believe, of Genesis 22 and Mount Moriah is that God would provide a sacrifice, especially the sacrifice of Jesus Christ, that's going to come on Mount Moriah. Okay, And that's more fully detailed as we read through Scripture, but it's not saying that you can't learn different things from Scripture. But the true and full sense, if we were to say, what is the purpose that this was written? It's to show the sacrifice of Jesus Christ and God providing atonement through it. It's not manifold, it's one in that full sense. Does that make sense? Okay. Census plenorum, yeah. You use that Greek word, brother, the first time that you came to our church. I don't know if you know that. And that's, I remembered you very well because of that. Um, so lastly today, paragraph 10, and then Brother Joey's going to bless us uh, next week um, talking about the God of the Bible and the Trinity. For religious questions in general, the scriptures are final. Okay? I'm going to read this final paragraph. The supreme judge by which all controversies of religion are to be determined, and all decrees of councils, opinions of ancient writers, doctrine of men, and private spirits are to be examined, and in whose sentence we are to rest can be no other than the Holy Scripture delivered by the Spirit, unto which Scripture so delivered, our faith is finally resolved. Okay? So, Supreme Judge, by which all controversies are to be determined. Okay? All these things gathered together, and I believe that when you look at this, you see a a higher authority or a, a greater weight to a lesser weight. Notice with me. The decrees of councils, okay? We ought to hold these in esteem, okay? Because these are not just the private interpretations of men. These are godly men gathering together sometimes for decades to consider one theological topic and deciding that this is what the Bible teaches. We ought to put some amount of weight on that. But it is not the supreme judge. The scripture overturns things when it is contrary to it. And then we have the next step, the opinions of ancient writers, right? I think that we would be lying to ourselves if we thought there is no opinions of any man that has ever lived that has any weight to me. And I would actually be concerned if you said that, right? 
Um, it's very common for us to appeal to secondary authorities, especially in, in matters that are obscure. It's very common and right to say, well, Calvin understood this passage this way, and therefore I'm a little hesitant to go against him, but I think that he was wrong in this instance, right? But we have some weight to it. And again, we can go to the doctrines of men and then private spirits, okay? That is, private interpretations of men. They're to be examined... And we are to rest in no other but the Holy Scripture. Notice, delivered by the Spirit, which Scripture so delivered, our faith is finally resolved. If any man, no matter if it's a council, a creed, a confession, whatever it is, speaks against the Holy Scripture, it must absolutely be abandoned by us. The Scripture is the final rule and authority for all of these things. Um, now, with each of those different steps, there's going to be more work to be put into it to show that they were wrong because of the way described to it. We should not get rid of the Nicene Creed, for instance, or the Apostles' Creed, unless we do the most utmost diligent search to prove without a shadow of a doubt the Bible does not teach this, right? There needs to be less work done with the private spirits of men private interpretations of other men. We can show that a little more simply. But the main goal of this paragraph, of this chapter, is to show that the Holy Scripture has been delivered by God for us. It is the absolute supreme judge. We have it in all of its availability, and we can trust it. We have it in its finality. We can go to the Holy Scripture um, as its own interpreter and the supreme judge of all controversies of religion. And... I'm just going to read to us lastly that last point from Acts chapter 15. Acts chapter 15. And I'm going to read a a little bit long section, but I want us to see that there are a variety of different evidences given to the Jerusalem council when they were trying to decide if the Gentiles should be circumcised. The Jerusalem council, which had weight. Okay. Verse 6. The apostles and elders were gathered together to consider this matter. And after there had been much debate, Peter stood up and said to them, Brothers, you know that in the early days God made a choice among you that by my mouth the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel. And God, who knows the heart, bore witness to them by giving them the Holy Spirit just as he did to us. And he made no distinction between us and them, having cleansed their heart by faith. What kind of evidence is Peter putting forward to the Jerusalem council? It's experience, isn't it? I I preached the word of God to the Gentiles, and God was... The Holy Spirit to them. Okay? We, we can continue. Now, therefore, why are you putting a neck, putting God to the test by placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples that neither our fathers nor we were able to bear, but we believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus just as they will. So Peter, in seeing this experience take place, truthfully and really, the Holy Spirit coming down, he presents a further theological Issue derived from the scripture, doesn't he? He says, if that's true, if they're saved by grace, why are you trying to put them back under the law by having them circumcised? Verse 12, and all the assembly fell silent 
And they listened to Barnabas and Paul as they related with what signs and wonders God had done through them among the Gentiles. After they finished speaking, James replied, okay, so we'll stop there. Again, Barnabas and Saul, they they say what they had seen through their experience, don't they? That God was pleased in this time and in this day to work many signs and wonders that confirmed the word that was spoken. He said they did that among the Gentiles. But notice the final authority to which is appealed. James replied in verse 13, Brothers, listen to me. Simeon has related how God first visited the Gentiles to take from them a people for his name. With this, the words of the prophets agree. Just as it is written, after this I will return and I will rebuild the tent of David that has fallen. I will rebuild its ruins and I will restore it. The remnant of mankind may seek the Lord and all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord, who makes these things known from of old. Therefore, my judgment is that we should not trouble those Gentiles who turn to God, but should write to them to abstain from things polluted by idols, from sexual immorality, and from what has been strangled, and from blood. For from ancient generations, Moses has had in every city those who proclaim him, for he is every Sabbath read in the synagogues. The final authority to which is appealed is not the testimony of experience even from Peter the Apostle. It's not the testimony of experience even from Paul the Apostle. But rather, they consider those things, they see the weight of that testimony, and they say, the Scriptures agree with this, Right? And he quotes the Old Testament Scripture saying that this is in full accord with the experience of the apostles of that time. Okay? Do we have any thoughts or questions? Brother. No, yes. Yeah. 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 No, you're right, brother. Yeah. Amen. Yeah, it's good because it can expose our our errors. Yeah. Amen. The the hermeneutical spiral is, I think, the best hermeneutics book that I'm aware of. That. Yeah. Yeah, Osborne. Okay, yeah. Those are great, great books. Okay, oh yeah, I'm sure. Thoughts, questions? The availability, the finality of Scripture? And again, I just wanted to impress upon us today that this has... This is not just ivory tower kind of doctrine that we have. This really is supposed to affect how we think of the Scripture, that we trust the Scripture. It affects how, how I and Joey should do our sermon preparation, right? That Rather than reading a text and going directly to commentary, we, we read a text and believe that the Bible is the perfect interpreter of the Bible, and I need to compare other texts of Scripture before I go anywhere else to see what other men think. The Bible's sufficient for these things. Um, and we ought to praise God for it. That we hold something in our laps that is absolutely divine, absolutely trustworthy for us. Okay. I'm going to close in prayer.